This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Marie LeConte. In the 1960s, academic Richard Rose stated that the Conservative Party has tendencies, not factions. Though the Labour Party loves splintering and fighting internally to the death, the right, it was argued, was better at sticking together in the long run. As a more recent study found, I quote, allies on one issue either become enemies on the next or else simply do not feel strongly enough on the next issue to want necessarily to work together. This more recent study, I should add, took place before June 2016. I think something happened then, but I can't remember what. Anyway, over the past seven years, the Conservative Party has given Labour a run for their money on internal warfare. What's changed? Are the post-Brexit years really that different from the rest of the party's history? Here with me today to answer these questions and more is Tim Bell from Queen Mary University. His new book, The Conservative Party After Brexit, is coming out in March. Hi, Tim. Hello. So coming back to that quote, what's the difference between a faction and a tendency? Well, a tendency is a rather looser grouping, perhaps less coherent, maybe single issue. It certainly wouldn't have a big uh, following outside Parliament, uh, whereas a faction tends to be rather more well-rooted, more organised, more disciplined, uh, and it often has an extra parliamentary feature along with it. Should we care, actually, about the fact that the Tories tend to have more tendencies rather than factions? Does that shape the party in a specific way? Yeah, it does, because I think um, tendencies mean that the party is much more easily managed. I think factions make it much harder to manage and they also make governing obviously much harder as well because if you're a prime minister trying to get something through, if you've got this very hard and fast faction which is very well organised, which will caucus, which is quite disciplined, that can create problems for your legislative agenda. Hmm. And so looking at the other parties briefly, so what's the difference between the way the Tories kind of work internally and perhaps Labour and even the Lib Dems back when there were more than four of them? Well, Labour generally has been associated with factions, as you suggest. Uh, It's got a hard left, if you like, that exists outside of Parliament and always has. It uh, has tended to uh, whip itself. Uh, There's a socialist uh, campaign group of MPs, uh, which have been very well organised for a very long time before that. There was the Tribune group. The Conservative Party, traditionally anyway, had, you know, far more looser groupings, you know, that may be mobilised over single issues, but didn't necessarily run those single issues into a whole complex, coherent complex, if you like, that would cause the uh, management of the party extreme problems. But that, of course, as you suggest, has changed over time. Mm. And so arguably the most famous split in the Conservative Party was the dries and the wets under Thatcher. How did that come about and how did it shape the parties, both at the time and, I guess, until now? Well, you have Margaret Thatcher coming in in 1979 and essentially going against what was previously the orthodoxy. She decided not to reflate in a recession. She decided that she wasn't going to subsidise these loss-making industries anymore. And quite a lot of old-school Tories, some might call them kind of one-nation Tories, I got very worried about both the economic and the political consequences uh, of that. It turned out, actually, that for the Conservative Party, certainly after 1983, those political and economic consequences were actually quite positive. 
and what you got was the Wets, who were those old school One Nation Tories, rather kind of uh, dying a death, if you like, and the Dries, those people who were very much on board with Margaret Thatcher's, uh, if you like, radical, more sort of shock therapy programme, triumphing in the Conservative Party. And ever since then, I think you could say that the Conservative Party has been run by what I would describe as bog-standard Thatcherites. Hmm. No, that makes sense. And so, so you mentioned briefly the One Nation Tories earlier, so... What are the kind of main, especially historically, I will come back to post-Brexit later, but um, sort of, you know, pre-Brexit, what were some of the more notorious groupings in the Conservatives? Yeah, I mean, One Nation is a, an interesting one because it's much misunderstood. It was actually created after the Second World War. And contrary to what most people think about One Nation, it wasn't a particularly kind of soft left centrist grouping. It was a group of people who, yes, thought the Conservative Party needed to modernise, but it was all about means testing, for example. Enoch Powell was, was, was one of the groups. So, you know, the idea that it was somehow on the left of the Conservative Party is a bit of a misnomer. But I think you got a lot of groups that got going under um, Thatcher, partly to protect protect her legacy, actually. So, you know, there's the No Turning Back group, there was the 92 group, there was Fresh Start. There was the Bruges group, which, interestingly enough, did have a kind of extra parliamentary wing to it, if you like. And then, you know, you have some dining clubs within the Conservative Party, the so-called Lollards, for example, who are much, much looser groupings of sort of, you know, soft centrist MPs, if you like. Uh, but as I say, I think Rose is right to say that up until fairly recently you know those groups were were tendencies rather than factions the the exception perhaps was how those eurosceptics began to organize themselves under john major and that's in some ways the root of what we've got now you know because in trying to defeat maastricht for example they did begin to caucus and did begin to uh, almost whip themselves uh, independent of the party's own management system None of that all makes sense. So I think I, I find it really interesting just how much they love dining groups. I think even One Nation is very much centred around dinner, <laughs> which I enjoy a lot. But no, God, the Bridge Group, I think, was responsible for one of the worst evenings of my entire life. In about 2015, where I felt the need to go to one of their drinks events. And yeah, all the food was beige, all the faces were red. It was the most cliched evening you can imagine. And it was dreadful. I mean, to the point that, yeah, eight years later, I hear the name and there's still a slight sort of... Like the walls are closing in. Um, but anyway, so coming back to more recent times, so 2016 was obviously a huge moment for the country, but for the party itself. So do you think it changed the way the Conservatives operate on quite a fundamental level? Yeah, I mean, I think what 2016 has done and the Brexit referendum has done has, to some extent, made more manifest something that was latent, if you like, in the Conservative Party. And that's the kind of nationalist or populist strain within the Conservative Party. And that's the strain which essentially says the Conservative Party, particularly after Brexit, has to position itself as the tribune of the people. And, you know, if that means economic policies that are if you like, inimical to uh, the Conservative Party's normal position on the economy, which is fairly kind of free tradey, or if that means cultural positions which alienate some of its more kind of affluent liberal supporters, then so be it. Because actually, you know, in order for the Conservative Party to, to win in this new environment where cultural politics almost means more than economic politics, then that's where they have to be. So I think that's the, the main consequence of Brexit. You can even argue, and that's something actually I do discuss in the book, um, that the Conservative Party's kind of transmogrified itself from a kind of mainstream centre-right party into a populist radical right outfit. And, you know, whether that process is complete or how far down the line of that process they've gone, I think is, uh, you know, something we can argue about. Hmm. 
this is slightly more esoteric, I guess, but I, I have a really striking memory of a lunch I went to in 2016, so not long after the referendum, and got chatting to this minister who was pro-Remain. You know, and, and I kind of, you know, it was just like friendly lunch chat. And I thought, you know, and I told him, I was like, you know, do, do you think the split in the party will get reconciled soon? Are you all going to be friends again soon in the way that Tories, you know, do these things? And he said, oh, well, you know, not, not really. I don't think so, because, you know, there's obviously us on one side and to the other side, they're all <laughs> so I didn't really see anything happening anytime soon. And I was like, oh, okay. okay. Um, and, and so, you know, how much I think what I find interesting within that is actually, and especially I think more so looking on the Tory side and the Labour side, how much of that stuff actually is social and personal rather than political, especially if, again, as we've talked about, a lot of it is around dining groups and drinks, etc. So how, how much is just, you know, in the kind of left-wing way, just we have sets of beliefs and policies and ideologies and how much is these are the people we kind of socialise with anyway? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I don't have to tell someone who's written a great book on political gossip and, you know, the kind of social side, if you like, of Westminster, that they are completely inextricably in intertwined. Um, you know, you don't know which is chicken and egg. I mean, you don't know whether the kind of ideology leads to the dinners or the dinners lead to the ideology. But uh, I think they're definitely intertwined. I think it's particularly the case, actually, in the Conservative Party, because it's such a leadership oriented party so that really no policy spat uh, dispute is seen outside of the prism, if you like, of, of of who's going to you know snatch the crown next, who's going to be part of their court, as it were, who's going to try and stop them, uh, who's in the alternative court. Uh, I mean, that's clearly also the case to some extent in the Labour Party. But I think because the Labour Party is at least rhetorically a, a rather more kind of collective organisation uh, than the Conservative Party, where it's all about the individual leader and who's up and who's down, I think it you know, those personal relationships in some senses do map on to some of those ideological differences. Hmm. And even I think looking, and that's probably a product as well of the, like the Parliamentary Conservative Party being so big now, there are so many people you think, if you had to be stuck in the lift together for an hour, despite the fact that you both do the same job, it is deeply unclear to me what you talk about. I know that's something we've talked about before, like the role of class as well in the Parliamentary Conservative Party. And yeah, I find that quite striking. But um, so th th this next one is going to be, I'd say, pub quiz adjacent. Uh, and I hope you have some notes. Uh, you're allowed to cheat. Okay. So c could you name, could you take a stab at naming actually all the groupings that have formed since Brexit? Oh, I don't have any notes. We can't actually include the ERG, can we? Because the ERG was formed um, before Brexit. Oh, technically Brexit. it was. Yeah, yeah so. that's true. Well, I, I feel like we can sort of count that have been prominent in the post-Brexit yeah, years. Yeah, OK. So, so we'd have to include the ERG, wouldn't we? And, and, and they're obviously, you know, responsible for... Uh, a whole load of stuff that's gone on since Brexit that we can perhaps get into. They get half a point. Yeah. And then yeah. you've got the <laughs> then you've got the two uh, CRGs. Mm. We've got the China Research Group, mm. and we've got the COVID Recovery Group. Northern as well. Uh, yeah, and we've got the Northern Research Group. Mm. Uh, we've got the um, Conservative Growth Group. Uh, we've got the Net Zero Security Group, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we've got the Common Sense Group. Oh, I'd forgotten about common uh, sense, yeah. So, well, we all forget about common sense, mm. but yeah, I mean, those are the ones that spring to mind. Yeah, and then I think, yeah, so then at the same time, you still have One Nation kicking about. Tory Reform Group is still doing stuff. Yeah, that's still there. I mean, um, if you go to, as you you know, you do, you're an assiduous conference goer, I know, you you will see all these groups have um, fringe events uh, and drinks events. Um, so yeah, they are still knocking around. How important they are is another matter. And I think this whole question of, you know, where is the left of the Conservative Party? Is there a left of the Conservative Party is, is you know, one um, that, that people really do need to discuss because it's, it's you know, 
frighteningly small now, really. I think the party has effectively been taken over by the right, and that's been going on since the 1980s. It's very hard to identify many centrist or, or, or left-wing conservative MPs, at least who will come out and say so explicitly. Mm. Uh, and that's the difference. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Okay, so we, we've had the shopping list. You may find this hard to believe, uh, Tim, but um, I think that some people listening at home may not, in fact, know a lot about all these Tory groupings because apparently they have stuff like lives. So could, could we do a slight, you know, so like a bit more detail? So like the, the, a few of the groups you mentioned, like can we have like the full name and sort of what they do, I guess, what, what they stand for? Yeah, sure. I mean, the ERG is the European Research Group and it is very much the kind of uh, Brexiteer, ultra uh, hardliners group. Uh, they are the group that essentially prevented Theresa May getting her deal through and eventually brought her down. You have the China Research Group, which in some senses does what it says on the tin. Those are people who are very suspicious of China, think that uh, under George Osborne and David Cameron, we got too close to China and we need to move away. And they put a lot of pressure on the government, for example, to get rid of uh, Huawei from government procurement. You've got the COVID recovery group, which again, probably says what it does on the tin. Uh, they were very much in favour of trying to persuade Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, uh, pushing an open door there to open up the economy faster than perhaps some experts wanted them to and to lock down slower or not at all. You have the net zero security group who are all about suggesting that, uh, you know, the move towards net zero is going too far too fast and will be too expensive and, and casting doubt upon whether we can do it, whether we should bother doing it, given that other places aren't doing it. I thought that the common sense group is basically the... Um, now, that was the gammons, right? Sorry, my word's not yours. My word's not yours. Yeah, good. I mean, uh, to, to use more traditional pilots, they're the kind of hangers and floggers and send them backers, if you like. Uh, they're also the people who are very worried about, for example, tearing down statues, you know, are all about the war on woke. Um, you know, John Hayes, uh, John Gullis, those those sorts of people. I think we've we've probably covered most of them there, haven't we? Oh, the growth group is the, the last one that we might talk mm. about. And those are the people... Uh, people like Simon Clark, who are kind of allies. That's the Liz Truss Memorial Band, isn't yes, it? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. It's the, it's the Liz Truss Tribute Band. That's right. Who who think that uh, Liz had a lot of great ideas. She just uh, you know tried to um, implement them too quickly. And I but, think real trustism was never tried. Actually, I think you know, find here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So yeah, they they are the main groups at the moment. Mm. And this is the big question, really. But like, what purpose do they serve? Like, what you know, some of them are technically single issues. Some of them are very broad in scope. So, what what do they hope to achieve? What do they what do they want? Well, I mean, their aim really is to nudge the leadership to uh, follow the agenda that uh, they're keen on, and they do that by um, caucusing, uh, by um, you know, if they the ERG actually whipping themselves into a frenzy, but also into preventing the government doing what it wants to do. They might publish pamphlets. Uh, they might publish um, statements they get on the media. Uh, and it's all about influencing the leadership, really, um, whether from, you know, within privately or without via the media. 
So actually quickly before moving on, so I think we've talked quite a lot about the many things one nation is not. And and I know this feels like a slight trick question due to what we've just discussed, but how would you define a one nation Tory now? Well, perhaps I should say how the media defines a one nation Tory. And I guess the media would define it as someone who is uh, essentially in the centre of the Conservative Party, who, yes, is a believer in free markets, but also believes that the government, you know, should play a role, is perhaps, you know, quite nationalist, but is also uh, a believer in international cooperation. So really, I guess, someone who is in the kind of centre of the Conservative Party rather than on the right. So looking at this from a leadership angle, so I think there's something interesting here because so Cameron technically had the Cameroons around him, but that kind of felt like peak Tory, like more of a social group than a sort of policy-led one. You know, you don't really know what a Cameroon was. And a lot of it was kind of window dressing and PR. Then you had Theresa May, who again was technically one nation, but that doesn't really mean much, but was, you know, and was famously not very factional and clubbable apart from that. Then Boris Johnson arguably used, I think, a lot of the factions to get to where he wanted to get, but actually was never again a proper factional man in himself. But then Listras, I guess, on the other side, was always very much part of that very factiony part of the Tory party that was the think tanky sort of, you know, hyper liberal, etc., small state wing. And now we're back to Rishi Sunak, who actually was not again a massive, like probably because he's, you know, he was in parliament for about 17 seconds before becoming a cabinet minister. So so was never a kind of like proper factional man. So how how yeah, how do leaders and factions kind of interact with one another? I mean, I think that really is an interesting question. It's not one, actually, that we've studied very much, to be honest. You could get a master's or a PhD thesis out of that, should you ever want to. I mean, I think I'd say, you know, one word, really, and that's uneasy. I mean, I think if you're a leader, on the one hand, a faction can be a real springboard for you, you know, into the leadership. On the other uh, you know, you do risk becoming a prisoner of that faction and being so strongly identified with it that it actually makes it difficult to manage right across uh, the party. Uh, and then, I mean, oh, I was going to say on the third hand, I mean, all politicians, <laughs> all politicians have three hands, right? I it's mean, the AI now. It's funny. Yeah, that's that's many, right. yeah. I mean, on, on the third hand, I, I think if you are a leader, not having the backing of a, a faction, you know, a, a group that will support you through thick and thin, can be really problematic because once your support begins to slide, particularly in the opinion polls, then you've got nothing to fall back on. And, and you know, you can fall very quickly. Uh, and, you know, in some senses, you know, Boris Johnson is a good example of this because he transcended the faction and as much as he transcended the Brexiteer ultras and there was kind of no one left to support him, really. But Theresa May, I think, is a very good example of that. Um, you know, there were no Mayites, really. And that meant that, you know, once she'd outlived her usefulness, there was no one there to support her. Hmm. That's quite, yeah, that's quite interesting because that feels quite reminiscent, weirdly, of Macron in France, of actually if you become president and you don't, especially his first uh, administration, where actually if you, if you don't have, you know, natural born and bred en masse supporters, if you start falling in the polls, you're going to fall and fall and fall. And obviously he did recover in the end, but I think it's that thing of having a cushion or a base means that you come with enemies, but also you do come with friends, which changes, I think, the dynamic somewhat. But so to look at this the other way, actually, so why why should an MP join a faction? So I know it's, it's my own sort of one of my very nerdy areas of interest is what I call the blob, which is the vast majority of MPs actually in the Conservative Party and the Labour Party as well, who actually are not part of any factions. They never do national media. They never rebel. We never hear a word from them. And yet, you know, if you look at the raw numbers, they are usually the majority of the party. So actually, should these people join a faction? Should we like, what, what, what should be in it for them? Like, what, what's the argument for them, I suppose, on, on an MP level? Well, I mean, I think there's a degree to which 
belonging to a faction can give you a um, some more legitimacy uh, than you might otherwise have when you're speaking. Uh, it can amplify uh, your voice if people think that you've got other people behind you and you're speaking on their behalf. I mean, I think you are right to say, however, that that blob, as you call it, or the, the solid centre, you know, has always been there and they're a lot quieter, perhaps, um, and, and less noticed than the members of faction. And I think that in some ways points to the, the fact that journalists rather like factions and groups because, you know, parliamentary parties are pretty amorphous, chaotic places and carving them up into various groups is a neat way of being able to communicate what's going on in that parliamentary party to the outside world. The other advantage for a journalist is if you have a source either kind of anonymous or on the record that uh, is perhaps <laughs> not quite as influential as, as you would like to suggest they are or perhaps more intellectually challenged than, uh, <laughs> than maybe uh, ideally they would be. Presenting them as the spokesperson for a faction, I think, allows you to bring them into your story in a way uh, that you, you possibly would find a lot more difficult uh, were that not the case. But you're the journalist, I'm not. Uh, I, I suspect no, I was about to say, so I wonder if there's not also, on, on that specific note, a sort of like slightly tedious day-to-day -day thing. Obviously, politics is all about narratives. Um, and it can be really hard to, you know, because I, I, I think... Editors love to say, oh, can you take the temperature on this? Can you call a few MPs and see how they're feeling? And it's a bit like... Well, I, I can, but the problem is most of the time if I talk to, let's say, you know, the four MPs I've got a good working relationship with in that party, they'll just be speaking for them. So I'm not sure that is temperature taking. And actually, you feel like you're taking a big risk as a journalist saying, well, from those four people I spoke to, <laughs> you know, this is what I got. Uh, whereas, again, as you said, I think if you can, let's say, call up Steve Baker and say, OK, well, the ERG, you know, it's kind of like I see it as high school cliques, right? Of like, OK, well, you know, that's what the mean girl thinks. That's what the goth want. <laughs> uh, that's what. And then, and then you've got a clearer picture. You can go back to your editor and say this is their demands, yeah, you know, are quite yeah. clear. Um, so that's probably why the media as well, I think, goes. Yeah. towards those factions and obviously and then that becomes self-fulfilling yeah. right of, yeah. yeah i now have a vision of all the conservative uh, parliamentary parties sitting at these long benches in a gymnasium <laughs> um, you know blanking each other and you know some of them dressed in cheerleaders outfits <laughs> i don't want to go down that route though no no that was just like immediately very upset by yeah steve baker just waving pom-poms <laughs> so do you think the parliamentary conservative party has actually changed for good and has become a lot more factional like is it a party of factions now or do you think that that will be remembered those kind of post-brexit chaos years will be remembered as a blip and it'll actually go back to being a party of like, you know, good chaps and tendencies quite soon. Well, I mean, I, I think it is a good question. It's not one I have a, uh, you know, definitive answer to. I mean, I think in order to say it was truly factionalised, you would have to look to see if there was some crossover between some of these, if you like, single issue grouping. So, you know, do people who are in the ERG also belong to the net zero security group? Did they also belong to Uh, the COVID recovery group, for example, do they also belong to the conservative growth group? And if you find that there is a core of people who, you know, uh, as it were, at the center of that Venn diagram, then I guess you could then, particularly if they begin to kind of, you know, um, organize a kind of whipping operation um, and it lasts over time, I think you could say, you know, that the Conservative Party had become definitely factionalized. I'm not quite sure that that is the case yet. And in some ways, I mean, typical academic answer, I guess what we're going to have to do is, is have a look at some of these people who carry out these kind of quantitative analyses of voting within Parliament to see if that is indeed the case. And, and if it is, then I think, yeah, we do have a Conservative Party that's begun to look more like the Labour Party of old in the sense of being a party of factions rather than tendencies. 
only time will tell. And I think it'll be interesting to see what happens when the Conservatives end up in opposition. That was really interesting. Tim Bell, thanks for coming. Thank you very much. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get access to episodes early and without adverts, as well as exclusive merchandise offers. This is Marie LeConte. Thanks for joining me in the bunker. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Marie LeConte. The producers were Alex Reese and Jack Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with audio production from me, Jade Bailey. The group editor, Sandy Harrison, with music from Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.